As you're turning to uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, that'll be our text today. We're working through this great letter of Paul. And um, let me mention, starting, I think it's a week from Wednesday, the 17th, I'm going to be leading a class from 7 till about 8.15 in the evening on uh, Jonathan Edwards on the Christian Life. You can buy that book online, Edwards on the Christian Life. And read the first chapter before then and join us. It'll just be a group discussion format. And I'd love to have you at that time if you can join with us. There should be an outline on the back of your bulletin and a printed message at both exits. You can pick those up either now or later. And uh, all the printed and audio messages for the past 23 plus years, almost 24 now, are on the church website, and you can access them there. We come to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul writes, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. If I told you that I was going to go over to the local cemetery and preach to all the dead bodies there, I think you would rightly say, you know, Steve has lost it. And yet, really, that's what we're doing whenever we talk to lost people about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because outside of Christ, people aren't just spiritually misguided or spiritually weak or ignorant. The Bible says, our text says, they're dead. And so they don't just need to be persuaded to believe in Jesus. They need life from Jesus. They need the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and they need God to resurrect them from spiritual death. So as someone has said, before we get people saved, we need to get them lost. In other words, we need to help them understand how desperate their true condition before God is, because If they don't see that they're hopelessly dead in their sins, they may think they can do something to remedy their situation. They may not see their need for new life. And if people think they're doing okay spiritually, well, they'll welcome a little guidance, a little assistance, but they will not cry out to God, God, you need to invade my life with your life. You need to resurrect me from the dead. So, although lost people do not realize that they have three very uh, crucial needs. Number one, as I've said, they are spiritually dead and they are alienated from God and so they need new life. A second need is they're under God's just condemnation because of their sins and so they need forgiveness And thirdly, as we've seen in chapter 1, they're in Satan's domain of darkness, 
under his authority. And so they need to be rescued out of that by God's power. And so in our text, Paul reminds the Colossians of these three wonderful truths. Um, And he is continuing here the theme that he has uh, been emphasizing throughout the book. And that is, Christ is superior and Christ is sufficient. He is better than this dead religion of works that the uh, false teachers were trying to infiltrate into Colossae. And he is showing us that empty religion has no saving power, that Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead, is all-powerful, and he can impart life to those who are dead. So Paul is showing us that because Christ died and is risen, in him we have three things. We have new life, we have forgiveness of all our sins, And we have victory over the forces of evil. Now, verses 13 to 15 rest on the truth that we saw last time in verse 12. And that is that baptism is a picture of our salvation. Baptism pictures that we died with Christ when we go under the water. That God raised us up with Christ. And when he raised Christ from the dead, we are with him. And so through God's grace in saving us, we're identified totally with Jesus Christ in his death, in his resurrection, pictured in baptism. So the first point that Paul makes here in uh, verse 12 and the first part of verse 13 is that because Christ died and is risen, in him we have new life. Let me read those verses again. I'm going to start at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Three truths to grasp here under this point. And the first one is that apart from Christ, We were spiritually dead. You think about it, Paul could have used less severe language than that. Paul certainly could have said, when you were apart from Christ, he brought you near. And that's true. He did that. He could have said, when you were alienated from Christ, he reconciled you. True again. But he didn't say that here. Here, as well as over in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul uses that word dead to describe our condition before we met Christ. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God told them before they sinned, if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day they would die. In the Bible, death always pictures separation not cessation of existence. So the day they ate of the fruit, instantly they were separated from God in his holiness because of their disobedience and sin. That same day, the process of death physically set in where they were now subject to illness and eventually aging and physical death. When a person dies physically, his soul is separated from his body. 
The soul either goes to be with the Lord in heaven or uh, into hell against uh, in, in God's judgment. To be spiritually dead means that we are separated from the living God. And it also means if we die in that condition physically, it's extended into eternity, which is the most horrible kind of eternal existence imaginable, to be separated from God, to be under his wrath eternally. Death is an ugly thing, and I think God uses that word so that we will face the reality of it. You know, a dead body is is foul and corrupt, and uh, the Jews, if they touched a dead body, they were ceremonially defiled by doing that. We, in America at least, try to dress up a dead body to look as alive as it can be for the funeral, and sometimes we have an open casket, and you know, we, we look at them and think, my, they look good. Well, no, they don't. No, they don't. The tragedy is they're dead. And uh, so we need to embrace the horror of that word. And Paul here says that we were, we, before we met Christ, were spiritually dead. And it could be understood either because of two causes or in two spheres. The one transgressions, that refers to actual sins we commit. And the other, he says, the uncircumcision of our flesh. And that refers to the sinful nature that we inherited from Adam because of his sin. When Adam sinned, the Bible teaches, Romans chapter 5, that God imputed Adam's sin to the entire human race. And that second phrase, the uncircumcision of our flesh, especially reminded the Gentile Colossian believers that before they met Christ, in Paul's words in Ephesians 2.12, they were, he says, at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. And then this last phrase, is one of the bleakest in the New Testament, having no hope and without God in the world. What a horrible place to be, without God in the world. And so, apart from Christ, then we had these two serious problems. Number one, we were dead spiritually because of our sins. And number two, we were dead spiritually because of our sin, our condition inherited from Adam. And so the Bible doesn't teach that we're sinners because we sin. It teaches that we sin because we're sinners. Constitutionally, we are sinners. Now, sometimes people will say, that's really unfair of God to impute Adam's sin to us. Two comments on that. One would be, be very, very careful about accusing the Almighty God of being unfair. That's not a place you want to be. Okay. And number two, Do you think you would have done any better than Adam and Eve uh, in that? If so, I would say you have too high an estimate of your own moral ability. We all would have sinned. We all would have sinned had we been in Adam's place. And so God is just in the way he deals with us. But those two aspects of sin mean we had a very, very serious problem. 
Um, by having a sin nature, what it means is you can't add good works in order to be right with God. You know, if you take a pig, you can dress him maybe in a tuxedo, and it looks pretty good for a little bit until it finds a mud hole. But pigs are going to gravitate to the mud hole because they have a pig nature. And you can dress people up with all the good works in the world, but it doesn't change their heart. And if their heart isn't changed, it's just camouflage on that corrupt, evil nature. Also, all the good deeds in the world cannot eradicate the the charges that God has against us because of our sin. It would be as if a, a guy went in before the judge and he's committed many robberies and murders and, you know, he's kidnapped people and done all sorts of things. And he goes in and he says to the judge, oh, well, judge, you know, I'm a member of the Kiwanis Club and I do good deeds. And I I help little old ladies across the street and I give my money to the Salvation Army every year uh, when they got those kettles out at Christmas. And the judge is going to say, that's irrelevant. Did you commit these crimes or did you not? And if he did, he's guilty in spite of all of his good works. Good works cannot remove the charges that God has against us in his holy courtroom. And good works cannot raise a sinner from death to life. He needs resurrection. And that leads to the second truth here, and that is that Christ's resurrection then is the basis for our resurrection because Paul says through faith we are in him. Notice again verse 12, Paul says, you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, we're all inclined to believe, well, faith is something that originates with us. And the Bible shows elsewhere, no, faith even is God's gift. And so in verse 13, Paul attributes our new life totally to God when he says, he made you alive together with him. And so we're in one of two conditions. There was a Puritan by the name of Thomas Goodwin who said, there are but two men standing before God. Adam and Christ, and these two have all other men hanging at their girdles. And by girdle, he meant belt. Uh, That was the phrase in that day. But what he means is either you're in Adam and you stand condemned before God, or you're in Christ and you stand justified before God. Um, There are no other categories. And if you're in Christ, it's God's doing because of this third truth. Only God can raise the dead. We were dead, and he made you alive together with him, verse 13. So what that means is becoming a Christian isn't a matter of just deciding to turn over a new leaf or a self-improvement resolution that you make at New Year's, that, yes, I'm going to do it, that kind of thing, because dead sinners cannot do anything that pleases God. They cannot understand spiritual truth because they don't have ears to hear uh, spiritual truth. And so no amount of efforts on the part of the corpse are going to bring it to life. No amount of efforts that we exert are going to bring it to life unless God quickens them from the dead by his power. There is an obvious, obvious difference 
between a lifeless thing and a living thing. And I learned this in a very fun job that I once had, um, more fun even than this job, believe it or not. But in the summer of 1970, I was in seminary, and I needed a summer job, and I wandered into Movie Land Wax Museum by Knott's Berry Farm at the time. I think it's since out of business. But it was a museum with wax figures of all these movie stars, and I got hired as Charlie Chaplin. And they sent me to Hollywood and outfitted me in a real Charlie Chaplin outfit, and I watched movies of how he walked and how he uh, did his thing. And so every day I would put on the makeup and the outfit and look like Charlie. There I am in that photo. And uh, I looked like Charlie and uh, I would go around and entertain the people and twirl my cane and I would pose for pictures with him. But the most fun part of the job was this. I would sometimes pose in front of that figure just totally lifeless. I wouldn't bat an eyelash. And people would come up sort of cautiously. It was kind of dark in there. And they, you know, I had a hard time telling who was real and who wasn't. And they would reach out very cautiously to touch my hand. And when they did, I'd grab their hand. (laughs) And I wouldn't move for a second. And they're trying to pull their hand away, desperate. And you could just tell they're about to have a heart attack on the spot. I thought I was going to have to call the paramedics a few times. And then I would say, oh, welcome. Glad to have you here at Movie Land Wax Museum. And they just would melt uh, because they had thought this lifeless thing was lifeless, but it was really alive. The most funny thing, I think, kind of funny, tragic thing that happened, there was this large lady, and she walked up and touched me, and I grabbed her hand, and she got her eyes big, and she couldn't even scream. She was so scared, and she started walking backwards like that, and as she did, there was a woman pushing a baby in a stroller, looking at all the scenes, and this 200-plus-pound lady plopped down on the baby, and the baby began to scream, of course, And I went over and tried to help her off. Well, that made it worse. She went hysterical on me. And uh, I had to make a fast exit and just decide, I hope that mother can rescue her own baby because this woman thought that this zombie or somebody was trying to save the baby, I guess. But anyway, the point is, there is a huge, huge difference. I'm the one on this side, in case you wondered, Alan. Yeah. I'm glad you couldn't tell the difference. There's a huge difference between living and dead, isn't there? And that leads me to ask a really serious, serious question. And the question is this, do you have new life in Christ? Do you have new life through Jesus Christ? And if you do, you responded and said, yes, Lord, I believe in you. I receive you as my Savior and Lord. And if you don't have new life in Christ, you might be just a good religious person who's kind of a walking spiritual wax figure. No life. No life. Looks live. One of the wax figures, by the way, was mechanical, and it would move its arms and turn its head like that. And... uh, 
It looked alive, but it wasn't. And it's possible to do that religiously and not have real life. Now you say, well, how can I know I have real life? Well, how do you know if you have physical life? I think most of you do today, looking around, maybe a few that are questionable. Uh, Your heart's beating, you're breathing, you're warm to the touch, you have an appetite. If you're young, you're still growing. Spiritually, it's kind of the same. You now have a heart for the things of God that you used to go, ho-hum, no interest in the Bible before. Now, wow, that's food for my soul. Um, You have a heart for Jesus. You love him because he first loved you. Uh, You have a hunger for God's word. You want to grow in respect to salvation. You love God's people, and you didn't used to. You now struggle against sin that before you just blew it off. Eh, but now it bothers you. And you experience forgiveness of sins, and that's our next point. First point, because Christ died and is risen, in him we have new life. Secondly, Paul says, because Christ died and is risen, in him we have forgiveness of all our sins. See in the middle of verse 13, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting in decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I like J.B. Phillips' paraphrase here. He says, he has forgiven you all your sins. Christ has utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments, which always hung over our heads, and he's completely annulled it by nailing it over his own head on the cross. Now, maybe you're thinking, if you've been tracking with us in Colossians, wait a minute, this is kind of a repetition of chapter 1, because in chapter 1, verse 14, Paul there said that Christ has forgiven us all our sins, and now he's repeating it. Is the man going senile, you know, just repeating the same thing? And the answer is, no, not at all. When the Bible repeats something like that, what it's saying is this. Never get over it. Never forget the wonderful, wonderful truth that Christ forgave all our sins through his death and resurrection on the cross. Two things to note here. First of all, to save us, God had to deal with the penalty of our sins in line with his justice, his righteousness. He could not discard his his righteous and just nature. Um, The penalty had to be paid. And if God did not have the penalty paid, he would not be a just and righteous God, which means he wouldn't be God at all. He would be a devil or something. For example, I've used this one before, but say a robber, God forbid, but a robber killed your mother to just steal her purse for a few bucks to support his drug habit. And he goes in before the judge, and the judge says, uh, gets off the bench and gives him a hug and says, hey, I love you, man. Try not to do that again. You would be rightly outraged and say, that was not justice. Uh, that, that was a perversion of justice, and that judge would be an unrighteous, unjust judge. 
Justice requires the penalty be paid for our sins. And the Bible says all of us have sinned and the wages of our sin is death, eternal separation from God. And so we all deserve that. But we have what Paul here calls the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which is hostile to us. And what that means is we come before the bench of God's justice and the, the record, the count against us is page after page after page of broken laws. Now, maybe somebody's thinking, well, wait a minute, you're exaggerating. I'm a basically good person. You know, I, I'm not a murderer. Uh, I, I'm not a rapist. I don't kill innocent women and children like those guys over in the Middle East blowing up everybody. I'm not a child molester, and I've never been arrested. I, I go to church. I live a good moral life. So uh, I, I think you're, you're going overboard to say that I deserve God's judgment. If that's your thought, may I say what you're doing is you're pulling down the holiness of God and you're lifting up your own righteousness in an ungodly way. Now, what Paul's talking about when he says the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us are the commandments of God's law. God's law. And that law is against us, and that law is hostile to us because we've broken it, and we're guilty. For example, you'll hear people say, well, I keep the Ten Commandments. Really? Let's try the first one. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Has that always been true of you? No other gods before the living and true God? And right now, does God rightly have authority over everything in your life so that you don't have any other gods? Or the second commandment, you know, you shall not make any idols. You say, well, at least I've got that one down. You know, I'm not an idolater. I don't have a shelf at home where I bow down and worship that. Really? How many hours did you spend in front of the TV this week watching cruddy shows or watching filthy movies or on your computer or your possessions or your career. You know, in fact, I think a lot of Christians even make an idol out of Jesus. And here's why I say that. Idolaters set the idol on the shelf and they use it when they need it. The rest of the time they get on with their life. But when there's a crisis, oh boy, They rub the idol the right way. They pray to it. They offer sacrifices to it. They want it to meet their need. A lot of people do that with Jesus. Oh, they set it up on the shelf. Yeah, they believe in it when they need it. But they go their way in their life without living daily under his lordship. Third command, we should not take the Lord's name in vain. And again, a lot of Christians will say, oh, well, good. I don't do that. And yet, I I didn't know how to say this without saying it, so I hate to say this. But a lot of Christians will say, oh, geez. And when you say, oh, geez, it's just short for, oh, Jesus, which is taking the Lord's name in vain. Or it's very popular now. It's even in a lot of text messages, OMG. And it means, oh, my God. 
And I assure you, people who say that are not praying. They're using the Lord's name in vain. So don't fall into that. The fourth commandment is keep the Sabbath holy. And I know we're going to say, well, Christians aren't under that command, are they? I'll talk more about that next week. We'll get into that. But my answer is, no, we're not under the Jewish Sabbath laws, thankfully. But there is a command in the New Testament about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And I realize I'm preaching to the wrong crowd because you're here. The ones who aren't here aren't. Uh, But there is that command in the Bible, and um, Sunday in the New Testament is called the Lord's Day. And I assume that means it's not my day, it's the Lord's Day, and I am to honor him by gathering with believers and so on. I, I read recently a poll where they asked evangelical Christians if they were committed to the church, and they would say yes, and they said, well, how many times a month do you go to church? Two was the average. So people that are coming to church twice a month say, I'm committed. That seems to me like half commitment. Uh, There's four or five Sundays in the month. The fifth command, of course, is to honor our father and mother. And I won't ask for a show of hands of anybody who thinks you made it through childhood obeying that command. Most of us, all of us did not. And it extends to our adulthood to honor our parents The sixth command is we shouldn't murder. And again, many would be quick to say, phew, I'm off the hook on that one. But then we read the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus ups the ante by saying, have you ever been wrongfully angry with your brother? You've killed him. He does the same thing with the seventh command where we should not commit adultery. And Jesus said, have you ever lusted? You're guilty. Number eight, don't steal. Well, I don't think many of us make it to this point in life without having broken that. May I remind you that cheating on your taxes is stealing, and we have that due date looming ahead here in a couple of months. Uh, Moving right along, number nine is that we should not bear false witness. Uh, Boy, that's a rough one, being truthful always. And then number ten is a heart commandment, don't covet what belongs to another. Jesus summed up both of those tables of the law when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's commands one through four. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. That's five through 10. And the reason I go through those is just to show this, we're all guilty many, many, many times over of breaking those commands. And that's why Paul says there's this huge IOU, this certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, and it's hostile to us because it condemns us all as guilty. And so how can we possibly escape God's just condemnation of our sin uh, through his holy law? Well, that's the second truth here, that on the cross, Christ completely paid the debt we owe. And Paul piles up the terms here to show that. First, he says, God has forgiven us all our transgressions. And that word forgiven comes from a Greek word that means grace, a free gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't do penance 
try, promise to try harder to pay for it. No, all you can do with a free gift is receive it. Receive it, it's free. And that's how we get forgiven. And also, don't miss that little word, all. God has forgiven us all our transgressions. Now, my understanding of that is this, that as a Christian, when I sin, I believe I need to go to my father and ask forgiveness for the relationship, but not for salvation. It would be as if I sin against my wife. Well, the relationship is strained. And I need to go to her and ask her forgiveness so that we can be restored in our relationship. But it doesn't mean we're getting a divorce because I sinned against her. The marriage is there, but the relationship is strained. So, yes, when we sin, we need to say, Father, please forgive me for that. I want to be close to you. But we don't need to fear that we're going to lose our salvation. Um, Paul adds that God has canceled or erased our IOU or certificate of debt. It means it's gone. He just took it and shredded it. Their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. It's paid in full. Christ paid for it. Now you still have the question, well, how can God do that and still be just and righteous? And Paul gives the answer in verse 14. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it, to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for every sinner who trusts in him. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul put it this way. He, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, he had to be sinless, to become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so by Jesus paying the penalty, as Paul puts it in Romans 3.26, God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so again, the crucial question is, have you put your trust in Jesus Christ and in his death on the cross as the payment for all your sins? If so, paid in full is stamped on your debt or... To use the picture here, the big eraser just erased the whole thing. The slate is blank. Now, sometimes, though, Christians will say, well, I trust in Christ as best as I know, and I I really believe in him, but when I sin, I still feel guilty, you know, and it just hangs over me, and I confess my sin, and I still feel guilty. Is that from God? My answer would be, if, if you've truly trusted Christ and you've confessed your sin to him, then guilt is coming from another source. It's not the conviction of the Holy Spirit at that point. It's the accusation of the accuser of the brethren, Satan. Revelation 12.10 talks about that. And so that leads to the third point that Paul makes. The first one is that because Christ died and is risen, in him we have new life. Secondly, because he's died and is risen in him, uh, we have forgiveness of all our sins. And then Paul goes on in verse 15 to show, because Christ died and is risen, in him we have victory over the forces of evil. Verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, 
having triumphed over them through him. And that last phrase, through him, might be translated through it, meaning the cross, but either way, it means Christ and him crucified. That's the way that God gained the victory over Satan. So what happened on the cross, it looked like Satan's greatest victory. The Lord of glory is hung there in shame and suffers and dies a horrible, horrible death. But God took that seeming victory of the enemy and turned it into his greatest defeat because on the cross, Christ once for all accomplished perfect redemption for his people and we who were captives of Satan in his domain of darkness are now through the cross rescued and made citizens of God's kingdom of light. The picture here, when Paul speaks of Christ disarming or God disarming these rulers, was uh, in that day when a Roman general went to battle and he won, they would have a victory parade in Rome. And that general would bring all of the captives, the other generals and the other soldiers, And before they had the parade, they would strip them of their armor, strip them of all their clothing, except a loincloth perhaps, and put them in chains and in shame, march them down the street while people were cheering like uh, we might do at a football game for the winning side. And it was uh, a picture. These guys were totally defeated. And they're not going to conquer us. And so... Christ willingly gave his life on the cross to pay for our sins. And so Satan no longer can rightfully accuse us before God's throne. And God, through Christ, conquered death so that there is no, we don't need to fear death as believers because we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so that victory of Christ was confirmed when God raised him from the dead and he ascended on high. And Paul says, now we are in him. We are raised. We are even seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And so when the enemy accuses you as a Christian, your faith is in Christ, just say, Satan, take it up with the blood of Jesus. If the blood of Jesus is not sufficient to atone for my sins, I am guilty as charged. I'm going to hell. But Christ died, and Christ is risen, and Christ is ascended. And so we have complete uh, victory in Christ, and Satan can no longer accuse us. There was a godly British pastor in the first half of the uh, 20th century by the name of William Sangster, And for him, the death and resurrection of Christ filled him with hope, even though just before he turned 60, he was diagnosed with a degenerative muscular paralysis. It might have been ALS, I'm not sure. But it was a slow, agonizing way to die. He devoted his fading energy to the cause of Christ. He organized prayer groups. He kept writing, but slowly... Slowly, the disease took over, and finally, he couldn't speak. His vocal cords were paralyzed. He still had movement in a couple of his fingers, and he could scratch out messages with a lot of effort. 
And on the final Easter morning before he died, just a few weeks later, he wrote a letter to his daughter. And he said this, It is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, He is risen! But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. Dead religion can never give new life. It can't forgive your sins. It can't defeat the devil. One thing can and has. The crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He has triumphed. So trust in him and you'll enjoy new life. You'll enjoy forgiveness of all your sins. And you'll enjoy victory over Satan and his evil forces. Dear Father, I pray that no one here would be attempting to get into your kingdom of light by presenting their good works. But rather, all of us, justly condemned by your holy law, would flee to the cross, that we would cling to Christ and him alone as our only hope, Thank you that you impart life to us, that you forgive all of our transgressions, that you give us victory over Satan and his hideous forces. And I pray that would be reality for every single person here. In Jesus' name, amen.